Okay. So first fact is roughly 12% of the US population lives on an income of less than $35 per day. Hmm, I would think that could be true. Maybe, maybe more than that. Okay, but I'll keep listening. Next one is more men than women lived in poverty in 2018. 12.9% uh, of men compared to 10.6% of women. Hmm, does that include children? No, just, just adults. Yeah, just male and female. I would be really surprised. Twenty-five if that's to thirty-five. Ages twenty-five to thirty-five. Mm -hmm. Oh. Hmm. I would be surprised if that's true, but maybe social welfare policies have targeted parents, and women are more likely to, you know, claim kids on their taxes. Be custodial parents? I don't know. Okay, what's the third one? And the last one is the poverty rate for a family headed by a single mother was around 25% in 2018. Hmm. So I'm trying to guess the one that isn't true. Mm -hmm. So I think I'll guess the second one. You're right. <gasps> yes! It's actually flipped. So 10.6% of men, 12.9% of women. And that's been pretty consistent, actually, over the past, I want to say, 20 years. Yeah. Um, which kind of makes sense, I guess. It does. Yeah. <laughs> and that's why we have the term feminization of poverty, right? Because women are more likely to experience poverty than men. Exactly. Yeah. And I think even for families with single dads, it's still less than 25%. Mm -hmm. So it all checks out. Mm -hmm. Good job. Thanks. Hard to trick you. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so moving on, I was looking into the formula that the Census Bureau uses to determine poverty, and they call it the official poverty measure, which compares pre-tax cash income against a threshold that was set at three times the cost of a minimum amount of food that you needed to survive in 1963. <laughs> so since 1963, they have not messed around with the formula at all. It's stayed the exact same, even though instead of spending a third of our money on food now we only spend about a sixth of our income on it so i was wondering what do you think about the way that they should retool the poverty measure yeah that's a really good question i think one primary area that should be addressed is the cost of housing because we know that housing takes a lot more of our income on average than some other needs like food yeah. um, and housing costs can fluctuate so dramatically between and among areas. And so it's really hard to have a federal poverty measure that accounts for housing, but we should still do the hard thing, I think, of figuring out what it means to be at a poverty level um, in terms of housing. I, I don't see a way forward meaningfully without addressing that. Yeah. But then I also wonder about all the other um, necessities of life besides food and housing. I mean, of course there's clothing, but also things like transportation. Uh, what else? Well, I mean, like utilities, which I guess kind of goes in with housing, but water, clean mm -hmm. water, electricity, um, stuff like technology, internet. I mean, at this point, kids, pretty much everywhere on, on Zoom or on Google Classroom or whatever, and they need an iPad or a computer. And I mean, some schools provide them, but not many. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think it's 
and then without a consistent internet connection, which again is something that isn't usually provided. Mm -hmm. But I mean, that can be even more expensive than food in some cases. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's interesting to be an observer of our society, I think, and just listen to the negotiations or conversations about what is a need for everyone, mm -hmm. or what is a, a right, a human right, or a right of citizenship, or a right of living in this country, versus what things are important and important enough that we should make sure people who are experiencing poverty can still get them, right? right? And we divide those things in ways that I'm not sure are consistent or meaningful. They do not make a lot of sense. <laughs> right. But technology is one where I feel like it, that's changing, right? Yeah. I mean, I think we can imagine a time when, I don't know, maybe turn of the last century, that having a telephone was probably a luxury, like a landline, a right? Big deal. Uh huh. But then it got to a point where that was considered a basic need to, that you have to communicate. And so at some point, and maybe we're already there, internet becomes a basic, a basic need. And maybe it's a basic need that we supply as a society to everyone. We just make broadband access available, like we do roads or bridges or whatever. Um, or is it a need, but we expect people who we think can afford it to pay for it and others not? I don't know. Yeah. I think if we, I mean, if we continue going the way we're going, just in general, everything is so reliant on technology. I can't remember the last time I seriously sat down and took like notes on paper or, you know, didn't turn something in online. So I think, I mean, here, obviously, yes, we have Wi-Fi, but it's not the, it isn't the norm. And I feel like we have to have the technology to, you know, like put up those weather balloons that send out the Wi-Fi. I know it's out there, just... <laughs> I guess it's not in the best interest financially of the, the internet companies. Probably. And I didn't even think about this before, but healthcare too. Mm -hmm. Like we don't take that into account at all. Right. And if you don't have, I mean, if you're working a part-time job, oftentimes you don't have insurance and mm -hmm. the cost of, I mean, the cost of medicine, the cost of like doctor's visits without insurance is through the roof. Right. And that also brings up when we're talking about a federal poverty level, it's a cutoff at some either 100% or 150% or 200% or whatever, um, which creates a benefits cliff, right? And so we've, we have had Medicaid since 1965 and we had Medicaid expansion in many states, not all, but many since 2014 under the Affordable Care Act, but you can make $1 too many and lose that benefit, which some would see as a disincentive to work, which maybe it is right. for some, but it's also just a weird way of looking at health and healthcare, right? That will provide it if you make $1 under the federal poverty limit or 138% of it, but we won't, you know, we'll change how we understand your relationship to healthcare or right. health coverage if you make $1 over. It should be, I mean, I don't know if a sliding scale would work, but I think it should be more of a, like a general range rather than an exact amount. Because just because I make $151 instead of 150 even doesn't mean, it doesn't mean I'd be any more able to afford whatever it is that I need. Right, right. And then of course there's the option of simply make it available. Mm -hmm. Right. If as a society yeah. we value health and we want people to be healthy, 
then we make healthcare available. That would be nice. <laughs> and look at social determinants. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and then I think the last one that I kind of had floating around, which we mentioned, was transportation. Mm -hmm. And I was reading something earlier that was talking about how people should get paid like from the moment they leave to go commute to work. Oh my. And I thought that was just an interesting argument because I mean, well, you know, that would be nice. Um, <laughs> I feel like we can't expect anything like that, but mm -hmm. I also think like, if you have to take, you know, like if you have to take a train into work or if you have to take, if you have to drive there, it wouldn't be a crazy thing to have like large companies supplement your gas or mm -hmm. pay for your, you know, your Metro card. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't know, do you have any thoughts on transportation? Well, you know, I commute an hour each way mm -hmm. to my job. And so um, I have thought about what it would change for me if public transportation was an option for that and how, for me, that would mean I could spend that hour instead of driving mm -hmm. working. Yeah. Um, and then be home sooner, right? Be able to leave an hour before I would because I could do the last hour of my work on the train or whatever. Mm -hmm. So I could see how that would be, um, that would increase my quality of life, increase my well being. I also wonder though if that's, I'm not sure that's my employer's responsibility, yeah. right? Like there, I have made a choice to live where I live and work where I work. Mm -hmm. And so maybe that's on me, but I also wonder about the societal impacts of our individual well-being. Mm -hmm. If I can get home in a better frame of mind, does that make my family life and my community life uh, better? And does that bleed or you know infuse into the community? Is there a social benefit to us having more public transportation options and flexible work schedules. But of course, that's also a really privileged question, right? That yeah. there are so many people that, you, I mean, you can't be a grocery store worker from the bus. No. You have to be <laughs> in the grocery store to stock the shelves or cash people out or whatever. Um, Anything really yeah, in the service industry, I feel like is typically pretty inflexible too, like right. schedule-wise. Yeah. So I think while I would, uh, enjoy having a policy like that or um, employers supporting public transportation options or, you know, a transportation benefit in some way, I feel like there are, we can get uh, more, of, more effect for our dollar, more bang for our buck mm -hmm. if we focus on people who are working in the service industry or um, other lower wage earning jobs rather than those of us who get to make a bunch of choices about how and where and what we do for our work already we'll probably be okay makes sense um so we can move on to the if you want to move on to this um a few different things i read also talked about whether or not poor college students should qualify um so i listened to one podcast before about a woman who had three kids who was living right above the federal poverty line. So she didn't qualify for a lot. Like you said, the benefits cliff mm -hmm. kind of made it so that she couldn't get any of those benefits that she needed. <laughs> Whereas there was a, I think an NYU student who did qualify because he technically didn't have any income or he had very minimal income. Mm -hmm. um, 
because he wasn't being claimed as a dependent. Um, and I think it was, it's just important to think about what are the impacts of us kind of like giving these financial advantages to a student that I think he said, regardless of like whether he had it or not, his parents would still help him out. Mm -hmm. um, how does that, like, how is that detrimental? And do you think that stu students should qualify if they are still in fact, kind of like, you know, under their parents' umbrella of support? Mm -hmm. Well, I think what the foundation for a policy that excludes college students from some public benefit programs like SNAP for food or cash assistance uh, under welfare laws or welfare programs are two things. One is that in this country, I think we still see higher education like college as a privilege or as a choice or as an option, but not a requirement. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of like saying, I think in society, there's some sort of idea that someone who chooses, quote unquote, to go to college is kind of like someone else choosing to go on vacation or choosing to eat out. It's, it's a privilege. It's something you don't have to do, but you can do if you want to make that investment. And secondly, I think there is a fear or concern about creating eligibility, which we see in numerous social welfare programs, right? That there is a there are stipulations put in place to prevent people from doing things so that they qualify for public assistance when they wouldn't qualify otherwise. Like um, if you have a savings account and that, the, that asset is keeping you from getting a Medicaid card, you can't spend your savings or give your savings to someone else so that you will be eligible for a public benefit, right? Because that's creating eligibility and forcing, again, quote unquote, mm -hmm. the state to pay for something that they otherwise wouldn't have to pay for. So it's this, you know, this idea of self-sufficiency that that's more important than other things. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think our discussion about whether college students should qualify for public programs requires us to address those two things, right? If we allow college students to be eligible, will people then be incentivized or make the decision to create eligibility by not being claimed by their parents on their taxes or something like that? So then I think the state would be worried about an influx of all these college students signing up for SNAP, for food stamps, that some might say they is not needed, mm -hmm. that their parents could provide for them. Right, if or this, they could work. Or they could yeah. work, right? Um, if, that pro if they weren't eligible for that program so that mm -hmm. they would be creating eligibility. And then I think we also need to address whether or not higher education is still, an op is still just optional. I think for a lot of us, when we look at statistics about poverty, there are some people with college educations who are experiencing poverty, but more people experiencing poverty do not have a college education mm -hmm. because going to college is an anti-poverty measure. It's mm -hmm. something to do to prevent or to get out of poverty. So I think until we have conversations about those two things, I wonder if anything is going to change, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe we just need to demonstrate need. So I think some college students definitely have an argument to make for why they 
need food stamps. I mean, as a college instructor, if I could have a room full of students that either didn't have to work or had to work less mm -hmm. because they were on food assistance programs, I would love that because I think students are then more able to focus on what they're learning and they can learn more from my classes and from their experiences in college, which will help them in the long run. Mm -hmm. It's when we see students who are take, you know, having to do all the things. They are parenting, they are working, they are going to school and trying to be an excellent student. They are um, active in their communities. They are trying to take advantages of the co-curricular events on campus like community engagement or internships or clubs or all those networking opportunities that we know are important also. And humans can only do so much. And so I think from a human capital perspective, I think there's an argument to be made for supporting the food needs of people who are in college. Sure, I would agree. <laughs> yeah, I think it is, it's difficult to think about it from like a standpoint of, well, if you give all these college students access to food stamps, then are you taking funding away from people that need it in other ways, arguably more than college students do? I think it's difficult too, because the money that is allocated for stuff doesn't always end up going to what it's allocated for. You know, sometimes it goes other places or is used for, you know, like self-interest. <laughs> um, but I think, I think that's a good point that the more, there's only so much time in a day. I think the more time that you end up putting into, like putting into your education. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think without, without me being able to put time into my education, I wouldn't have learned half the things I learned in your class. And those will definitely help in the long run. So as a student on a campus, do mm -hmm. you see food insecurity? Do you see people who would most likely benefit from having access to food programs? I would say here it's not, not overwhelmingly, mm -hmm. um, but in some, I would say in some capacity. I think too, it's interesting to see like where people shop here. Mm -hmm. That's always really been an interesting thing to me. Like, you know, the Kroger on Wayne versus the Kroger over by, I don't know, I think it's on Stroop in Kettering. Um, you know, where people choose to shop, even though I think it's a well-known thing, like Dayton as an area has a lot of food insecurity. Mm -hmm. um, it's like with the opening of Gem City Market. I'll be interested to see, you know, if anybody here ends up getting a membership for there or, you know, going to shop there rather than going to shop at, you know, the Kroger on in Kettering or Trader Joe's or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I think I think everywhere on every campus, there's probably always going to be somebody that can benefit from it. Um, whether or not you know or like are able to tell, I think also is a difficult thing. But yes. yeah, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. I think it's becoming a little bit more of a common thing, like for people to not be claimed by their parents. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I feel like there's got to be some of it going on, but I don't see an overwhelming amount. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, I, I wonder if there's a correlation between people living off campus, living at home or living mm -hmm. on their own versus living on campus, which costs a lot of money that it's probably cheaper to find yes. housing <laughs> off campus. It definitely is. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, if people were short on money, they're probably not on campus to begin with. But that's an assumption, right? Yeah. That there could be scholarships or programs covering parts of housing that 
people still have needs for food. And at the end of the day, I think too, a lot of people, if they're pulling out a loan, they're pulling it out for housing and tuition and mm. whatever other, I don't know, whatever other miscellaneous things we pay for. Right. Um, Fees. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, your comment about the Gem City market, I think is really interesting because in the past two or three years, when I ask students in various classes what they want to do a project on, reliably, there are two or three students out of 20 who want to do something on food insecurity or food security. It has been a hot topic, mm -hmm. uh, and rightly so. It's really important. But students, it's a reliable topic in a way that other topics are not. Like universal health care doesn't always have someone who wants to work on that, but food always has two or three people. So I've heard a lot about Gem City Market from students and they were, have been very excited about it's coming and that it's opened. So it will be really interesting to see, I think, whether students put their money where their excitement is. Mm -hmm. Do you think it's accessible for students? Can you get there? If you don't have a car, can you still get there? Um, if you, I feel like if you know the public transit in the area, yes, if not, I think it's a little bit more difficult. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I also think, I mean, while there are a lot of people excited about it too, it's also $100 for this member ownership. And if you're not from here or planning to stay here, mm -hmm. that admittedly like doesn't make a lot of sense. <laughs> you know, there's the whole like, you can pay for one for somebody else that needs it. Mm -hmm. But again, is that like, as a college student, do we have the disposable income for that? Not usually, but mm -hmm. you know, again, it depends. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think, I mean, they've been having a good time, you know, drawing interest from community members and like regular full grown adults. Um, but I haven't heard a ton about like college student involvement. So it may happen a little bit more after it's actually open, you know, once people start hearing about it once it drums up more interest, but mm -hmm. yeah, I think it'll be an exciting and interesting thing to keep an eye on. Mm -hmm. That would be an interesting senior capstone project. Mm -hmm. College student, out, outreach to college students from the Gem City Market or college student involvement in the Gem City Market. It would be. Yeah, someone should do There's that. There's a whole host of interesting capstone topics. It's too bad I already did one. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Yeah.